The following episode was recorded in front of a live audience in the New Zealand Warbirds hangar at Ardmore Airport on the 28th of September 2014. We're very grateful to the New Zealand Warbirds Association for allowing us to hold a Wings Over New Zealand forum meet in their hangar. Because it was in a large hangar, the acoustics were not perfect and unfortunately there's a little bit of background noise in this recording. I do apologise that the sound recording is not perfect. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, we hear from Gavin Trithui, a former Royal New Zealand Air Force pilot who served on several different jets. In this particular presentation, he talks about service of the Royal New Zealand Air Force Canberra bombers. Okay, well, uh, good morning, everybody. As you can see, I learned to fly a long time ago. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's the wrong picture, sorry. <laughs> it wasn't quite that long ago, but it was a fair while ago. This, this, happened, this, this happened later on. And it was a lot of fun, I must admit. That's where I really learned to fly, Palmerston North. So, um, I don't want to bore you about me, but I'll just tell you a little bit about me for a start. Okay, I uh, went through Palmerston North Aero Club, got a PPL, and then uh, went did these things here. Joined the RNZAF. Flew vampires, 
the Canberra's and Malaya into the Hakia and uh, during confrontation went to CFS and flying training school as an instructor, instructor on Canberra's, ended up displaying them and then uh, was involved, in fact I ran the, the flights that took the aeroplanes back to India. We sold them all to the Indians, the Indian Air Force at the end. Having left the Air Force, I did that thing which most guys do, went back to um, the airline business and flew there for about 34 years. Tried most sorts of aviation out because it's all been good fun, gliding and towing, got a helicopter license, micro lights, that sort of thing. And then I came to Warbirds. Uh, and I've been for the last 25 years involved with this organisation here. Uh, various roles, from running the Roaring Forties, uh, president of the organisation, uh, chief flying instructor, ops manager, various bits and pieces. And I've been involved in display flying, displayed a lot of aeroplanes, and I've stopped counting after about 300 displays. And uh, it all started there with the Air Force, with the Harvard team. And I did a lot of displays on the camera, which is what I want to talk about. So the camera, it served from 1958 through to 1970. Uh, 75 Squadron flew the Canberra V2 in Malaya from 58 to 62. And 14 Squadron was equipped with the Canberra BI-12 from 1960 to 1970. Uh, we operated them in uh, New Zealand, of course, and um, in Singapore and Malaysia. The main bases for the squadrons were either a Hakia or Tenga in Singapore. And we spent quite a lot of time based at Tenga. Uh, some of the pictures you see there were involved... Uh, uh, that one there is... Tenga during confrontation. There were a lot of aeroplanes there at the time. Um, four squadrons of Canberra's, uh, squadron of Hunters, squadron of Javelins, squadron of Victors, um, various other aeroplanes there, PR squadron of Canberra's as well. And uh, from there we went to forward bases and uh, operated in lovely little spots like that one there, which is at Ladwar and Borneo. And as you can see, we had a bit of fun too, moving around the place. So the squadrons were detached at various times to uh, Labuan and Borneo, to Butterworth and Malaya, uh, to Gong Kedak, which was um, up by the Thai border, northern Malaysia. A 75 squadron uh, was formed for the Malay emergency. And those aeroplanes are Canberra B2s, and they were hired from the RAF, so the whole squadron was hired. And the guys went to UK and they learned to fly the B2 in UK, and then they flew them all out to Singapore. And they were based there, and they were involved in bombing from high level. The high level bombing role. Uh, I'll tell you a bit more about that as we go. Some of the fellas. And you can see the entry to that B-2, fairly short nose, two-man crew, and the lucky navigator who, uh, who lived underneath that little hatch there. 
behind it had a tiny window on the left hand side of the aeroplane which was his only view out of it. So there's a B-2 involved in bomb dropping and they did their first uh, actual combat mission um, in the Malay Emergency in uh, November I think in uh, 1959. And that's what the instrument panel looked like. Um, they tell this interesting story about the B-2 Canberra and that they built this lovely looking aeroplane. And then they, having finished it, they thought, hell, we've got to put a pilot in there. So they chopped a hole in the top and they emptied a, a, a drum of tar around the walls to make it sticky. And they got a big sack full of instruments and switches and shook them in. And wherever they landed, that's where they stayed. So things were not well designed for a pilot to, to make use of. Things were out of reach and the things you wanted to look at weren't where you should be looking. So then we went on to 14 Squadron. And 14 Squadron was in a different role. Uh, we were low-level operators, um, most of the flying down below 250 feet. And we were involved in uh, confrontation with Indonesia in 1964 and 65. That picture there is uh, one of the forward bases, that's at uh, Labuan and Borneo. Another picture of there. Some of you guys from wartime might remember operating on um, PSP tarmac, the middle, middle tarmac, which was laid out for us to operate on, and of course when it's wet you can slide all over the place when you taxi. Another picture of the aeroplanes there, uh, I think that could be a gone cat in northern Malaysia. So our operations around there were at low level, border patrols, um, just keeping a good eye out uh, for the Indonesians and making sure they didn't um, arrive in Malaysia where they should be. That one there I'll tell you a bit about, that's a bit of a hole in the nose cone. Uh, during these low level ops, we were getting bird strikes about, um, well, one out, one out of every four flights probably we'd have a bird strike. And most of them um, would hit the aeroplane, some get glancing, perhaps on the wing or the side of the fuselage, just make a small dent, but the odd one of course did a lot more damage. And that one came right through in the navigator's compartment, missed his head fortunately, Went above it, but did a lot of damage inside. Some of them were quite big birds. You got into the habit of ducking, and I found for years afterwards, I was driving a car, a bird was spotted I'd be <laughs> down below the windscreen. More pictures of operating over Malaysia. We generally operated in sections of four. Um, Yes, what more can I say about that? So that's, that's the actual operation of two squadrons. B2s, 75 squadron, high level mine, BI-12 interdiction, down, low, low. I'd just like to have a bit about the aeroplanes themselves and how, how they were to operate, um, rather than uh, too much about the operation now. The high level bombing involved. It hadn't advanced much since the Second World War. Um, we still had a visual bomb site, and the bombs were just dumb bombs. 
you had to aim them right, you had to see your target, you had to drop them right. And we were dropping from as high as 45,000 feet, Canberra being a high level, good high level performer. So when the pilots arrived on the squadron, they first of all started off at uh, 30,000 feet until they qualified, and then they were moved up in 5,000 foot steps until they reached the glorious heights of 45,000 feet, where in the middle of the night, you drop your bomb down on the target. And uh, of course, it takes something like about three minutes for that bomb to fall and hit the ground. And it's dropping through winds that are going in various directions, so that uh, the, the resultant fall was not going to be that accurate, probably. And if you got within about 200 meters, you're doing well. About every four or five months, each pilot on the squadron would go up to Song Song Range off Malaya, um, the western coast of Malaya, and you'd be the range safety officer for the week. And you'd sit in the little range safety officer's hut with the binoculars out to spot these bombs coming down. Most of the bombing was done at night, uh, and this squadron, 30% of our flying was night, and the airplanes would arrive on target, and they get a clearance, and clear them in, and you'd have your Couple of, couple of other guys with you in there as range safety officer and they the UN helpers. You'd be playing a game of cards and you'd hear the uh, navigator call bomb go on over the radio, so you didn't even stop playing cards. You knew you had about three minutes till the thing arrived. So about a couple of minutes later, you'd put your cards down, get the binoculars out, and focus on the target to where it was going to fall. And mostly it fell somewhere in the vicinity, but on one occasion, one of them fell behind me, which I thought was uh, a bit much. We were 800 metres away. <laughs> so the bombing accuracy wasn't great. It was okay if you were dropping a nuclear warhead. Uh, navigation accuracy is quite difficult to navigate these old things because they didn't have any gear really. Um, they had an air data computer and the long range navigation was done through uh, periscopic section, um, astro navigation, and we had an ADF. Indicator that was the sum total of the camera we could. Tropical ops posed their problems. Uh, we're flying around the vicinity, the uh, intertropical convergence zone, which is where all big thunderstorms come up. And uh, you get enormous banks of thunderstorms at night, and they'd be well hidden amongst the cirrus cloud, the high level cloud would be flying at um, 40,000 plus feet. So you couldn't really tell where they were. And they say that a thunderstorm, um, if it looks bad from the outside, it doesn't, doesn't look as bad from the inside. It looks worse. <laughs> so you get yourself some terrible shake-ups at times and the odd lightning strike. And, uh, uh, we didn't have radar, of course. And we had no autopilot, so it was all hands flying up high. We had cold temperature problems, so we had to suit up for those because it got, it's very cold up there in the tropics of height, you know, minus 60 degrees. Uh, the aeroplanes weren't well air conditioned, so we had a thing called a ventilation suit, which we wore under a flying suit. We plugged into the air conditioning on the aeroplane, had all sorts of little tubes running around inside it. Um, that fired off air all around your body to, to get your temperature somewhere close to where it should be. The airplanes weren't designed for 
looking after their people too well. The navigator worked behind the pilot in that nasty little position there. There's his instruments. He was directly behind the pilot. But to bomb, he had to go forward to the nose. So he went forward, got out of his ejection seat, went forward, lay on the nose. So at the worst time, uh, we, the time you're most possibly going to get shot down somewhere near the target. The poor beater wasn't in his ejection seat anymore. He was laying in the nose, hanging on the handles. Uh, so that made it difficult to get out of the aeroplane if they had to. Now at that stage of the game we were doing all sorts of air defence exercises with the RAF uh, in Singapore and all they had to defend was meteors and of course the meteor couldn't get up to 40,000 feet so um, we could have a clear run through except that they always told us we had to fly not above 30 and uh, we had to slow down and then they would have a chance to defend. <laughs> So that was the B-2. Uh, nice aeroplane to fly, but seriously lacking in all sorts of um, aids and things that you needed. Now, we were trained in this thing here, the Canberra T-4, which became later on the Canberra T-13. It was a highly disliked aeroplane. Uh, you saw the bubble canopy in the B-2, and the B-2 bubble canopy came up here, Pilot sat in the middle, his head fairly close to the top, so he could see over the top of the over the training. Then they decided to put two seats side by side in the trainer. So of course, because the canopy came down, they had to move the seats lower. So two two ejection seats down lower, and when you're sitting in the ejection seat on the side, you had to have your head like this with the canopy, and you could just get one eye over the front. So a flatless landing at night with one eye. <laughs> It was a good exercise. So the layout was good. Navigators had to get it behind once again and the uh, right-hand ejection seat was on a swivel. It actually swiveled forward so the navigator could climb behind and lock back into position. So uh, we had to put up with the, with the trainer for our checks. The guys would fly happily in this thing, the DI-12, and then they'd have to do their annual check, or their biannual check, and the T-4, and they generally hated it, and they generally didn't do it very well. Yeah, we understood that. So they go back to the BI-12, which was a lovely aeroplane. And this is the one that pulled in the squadron there. We're involved in low-level roll. So the flying was very much like you're seeing there. Offset canopy, and the canopy was offset because of the navigator positioning once again. The pilot sat on the left in that canopy, the navigator for takeoff and landing had, a, had his seat down low to the right of the pilot. And then he went forward in the aeroplane on the right hand side. He came forward into here to, the, to his nav station where he had a table sitting sideways in front of the aeroplane to work at his nav station and then he could come forward, forward further into the nose and lay it out for, for bombing. So nice things about the I-12 after the B-2 and the T-4 was we had a lot more fuel. So we could go further. The aeroplane had a greater all-up weight, uh, another 10,000 pounds uh, maximum weight. Uh, it had an autopilot. 
It had some navigation gear, it had Doppler navigator, it had TACAM, it had HF, VHF, UHF. Much better, much better equipped aeroplane than the old V2. As I said, it was another 10,000 pounds heavier, which allowed us to carry more and, and we were going quite a lot further than the aeroplane. But crew escape was still a major problem. The navigators in this aeroplane did not have an ejection seat, but the pilots had a wonderful ground level 90 knot ejection seat. So if you're charging along the runway at 90 knots and something went wrong, the pilot could get out. But of course the navigator couldn't. So, um, good British design. The, um, the pilots, of course, wouldn't. So basically, no one was going to get out of these things in that circumstance. This one here happened in Korat in Thailand, uh, where um, they had a problem on takeoff and it ran off the end. And uh, they pulled the gear up to stop the airplane. But you can see that you know, the exit there is fairly uh, hard to get at. Not an easy airplane to get out of. That's the interior of the BI-12. On the right-hand side, there's the pole there, the stick, right-hand side. And the, the instruments were much better positioned. They were in places where you could reach them, and they were sensible places where you could see them. The engines were uprated. Uh, we had the 109A, but as, as against the Avon one, so quite a lot more thrust. They had a cartridge starter. Um, so you fired the starter to spin the engine up to start the The B2 and the T4 had a single cartridge. The BI-12 had three, so you could go away places and stop the aeroplane and, and restart it again without having to uh, carry a store of these cartridges. Uh, we carried more and more weaponry in this aeroplane. We carried uh, rockets, 74, 74 rockets. And we carried uh, bombs on the wings as well as in the bomb bay. Yeah, so we carried 8,000 pounds of bombs and we carried 74 rockets. And because we were into a low level role and, and not, so, not doing high level bombing, most of, most of the aiming of bombs and everything was done by the pilots against the navigator. So the aeroplane had a gun sight and we were dive bombing um, with our bomb release most of the time. The rockets went off uh, as a barrage, 74, and they spread out, and uh, we were firing those uh, in level, at the time, level flight at 50 feet. And uh, they were um, designed to spread out and go right through the line of MiGs that were our initial target during confrontation at uh, Palembang. The airplane had some good features and some bad ones. Good features where it could go up high. Um, we were always above the airlines operating. We would start uh, any transit flights, we'd start above 40,000 feet, and I'd be up to 53,000 in uh, Canberra. So it would go up high nicely. It was very maneuverable, particularly going slowly. Had a good power weight ratio, plenty of power, which you needed to get up there, of course. And the range was much, much better than the, uh, the V2. In fact, um, 
became comfortable to transit up to Singapore, we'd go via uh, Brisbane, Darwin, and then straight to Singapore. I think the longest flight I did on the Canberra was about four hours and 50 minutes. And that's not long by airline standards for today, but when you're sitting in an ejection seat, which is a pretty hard seat, that's a long flight, especially with an optional mask changed on your face. Um, And it carried a fair amount Death bomb selection, bombs in the wings, rockets in the wings, bombs in the bomb bay. The problems were with the engines. The engines had this great capacity to uh, stall and surge, particularly if you tried to open the throttles too quickly, or if you're up very high, they would flatten out. And the asymmetric handling of the airplane was not good. Uh, with the engine out, um, We'd get off the ground at about 135 knots normally uh, on takeoff, and we had what's called the graveyard gap, which was the gap up to about 165 knots when, when you were able to control the aeroplane in the event of an engine failure. There was so much power, so you had no option but to reduce power on your good engine if you were below 165 knots, and then if there wasn't enough power to reduce, you weren't going to go anywhere except for the scene of the crash. Uh, the aeroplane uh, had, had a limit of 450 knots officially, but it had so much power that um, it was very easy to drag way through that. Um, uh, I think most of us probably got up to 500 before we realised it on a couple of occasions. It was uh, a good aeroplane for dragging along in a straight line. It was limited to 4G, which was limiting when you're trying to fight with uh, fibres, or when you were actually hitting around New Zealand on a good Northwest day down the south coast uh, at 350 knots when you can easily get 4G plus bump when you're running alongside the mountains. So we would have liked a bit more G though. I think uh, the biggest problem with the aeroplane was in the air conditioning and pressurization. It was built by the British for operation in Europe and then they sent it up to the tropics. So uh, First problem was that the, the canopy didn't open, so it was a big glass house. And when the sun was coming down, you were sitting in this glass house getting hotter and hotter. Uh, you couldn't turn the air conditioning on until you were airborne. So we used to have hoods, covers over the, over the top of the aeroplane while you got in, they were all over the line. You got on the aeroplane and we had an air conditioning hose from a, an external air conditioner pushing through the water. And that'd be firing air into the aeroplane to keep it reasonably cool. Now, once the engines were ready to start, we shut the doors and put those things away. And then we had 20 minutes. If you weren't here more than 20 minutes, the rule was you stopped the aeroplane, any rule was you got out. Because we did have the odd guy who flaked. Uh, even when you're airborne, it took a lot to cool off both the operations. Uh, they did some technical tests on the cruise. Um, and discovered that at an average one and a half hour flight, each guy was losing about six pounds in weight. Just in sweat. And of course, you'd uh, have to go up to the bar to replace it later on with a six pound four liquid. So you came back a real sweaty mess from, uh, from most sorties. Um, 
not sure I should tell the story, but I will. The ladies will forgive me. When you're doing a flight of four to four and a half hours, sometimes relief becomes necessary. And the system was not good. There was a what we call a P tube, which was like a football ladder, and it had a chromium top with a spring cap on it. And it was down by where the navigator lived, and if the pilot got the test room, he had to ask the navigator to pass this thing up. Now if you can imagine, if you can just imagine yourself strapped into an ejection seat with all this harness, you may wear some. Can you guys hear me that? May we stand with, uh, we also had on our front what they called a tree stake, which was a bag of rope, which uh, if we ended up at the top of the Malaysian jungle, we could lower yourself down on this tree stake. And then the flying suit, and then underneath that, the men's suit, the ventilation suit. And you had to find a way through all those before you could start thinking about using this tube. And you find in the seat, hard in, and you had to sort of point Percy horizontally. So the problem was the navigators didn't want this thing back when they finished. So you hand it over and they went, no way, what are we going to do with this? And it's one of the discomfort aspects of the airplane. I'll show you that uh, because this was back at a hacking and you notice the airplanes are silver. Just before we went on confrontation, they were all painted color in the space of about three days. And this is good, the Air Force had a real strike wing. Thank you. 
<laughs> Seeing much later, I thought I'd just try and tell you a bit about what it was like to display. Um, it, it was great aeroplane uh, for noise. It had a lot of presents, good size. You can see the size of it there against the vampire and the uh, skyhawk. It performed well going slow. It had rate power rate ratio, so you could actually make the thing go up pretty steeply. You had to watch the G with us in the display, but it's very easy to pull a lot of G when you're displaying it. Of course, 4G was the, the limit, so uh, when I was displaying the aeroplane, they were about an accelerometer, a G meter, right where the gun sight was in front of my eyes, so I watched this thing very carefully. And aimed for three and a half G and hope it didn't hit a bump. The navigator role. I should just talk about what the navigators had to do during displays. They were volunteers, the ones who went into the displays. They're very brave chaps. Normally, in a display, I would start um, by pulling up once the airplane was cleaned up and go into a roll off the top straight away. And in that period of time, you get off the ground, get the gear up, you hit safety speed 165 knots. Navigator would observe that, he'd undo his harness in the, in the jump seat, he'd rush forward, lay on the nose, grab the handles, and he'd just grab them in time, he had about five seconds, he did 190 knots, and up he went over the top. <laughs> and uh, most of the navigators, of course, were sensible enough not to want to do this, but a few of them, like this chap here, Hamish Gray, who I flew with for a long time, he was, he was a volunteer, very brave. That's the picture I think uh, someone was referring to before. That was uh, the last display in the back of private airplanes leaving. And uh, my memory, I think, that was somewhere close to 500 knots on that run. So then we um, sold all these airplanes to the Indian Air Force. And they used them uh, against the Pakistanis in operations. And I don't know what happened to them all individually, but before they went, we ran around the country and we, we did a few little farewells. And you can see us, uh, the camera behind the P3 Orion there, a vampire tucked in behind, and then the camera vampire Skywalk formation here. We flew around the towns, let everyone have a look. And that was the last one uh, which I took to India. That was the departure from Ahaki. Uh, happily, we all run, of course. But and you, that's a good view of the camera with uh, complete with drop tanks, a lot, maximum fuel. So that's it, folks. Any questions? Um, there was no fighter element involved in the Malayan emergency, certainly. 
there was a risk in confrontation because the Indonesian Air Force had um, uh, MiG-29s, which we were very concerned about. But by that stage of the game, we decided they could reach us anyway, so we come down on the deck. And uh, uh, all, of, all our attack stuff was planned to be high level till about 150 miles out from target and descend, and the last 100 miles on the deck, hoping to not be spotted. Thanks very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.